Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, good morning. How you doing? I'm doing very well, Steve. Now, you were fixing your hair a little bit because I, I think we've got Charlie Cox coming on and, and you find uh, Charlie to be an attractive gentleman. You know, you don't really have to say that. <laughs> you don't have to tell everybody what I do before we go on the air. <laughs> this is like honesty time, right? It's honesty time. <laughs> I would fix my hair for anyone. I fix really? my hair. I fix my hair for you. Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you. Uh, well, we're going to jump right in. Our guest today has got his big break opposite Claire Danes back in 2007 in the film Stardust. He has starred in movies like the Academy Award-winning Theory of Everything, but he is best known as being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He played Daredevil in the hit Netflix series. His latest project is Kin, the story of a crime family in Dublin. And wow, it is a gripping show for AMC+. Charlie Cox is with us. Thank you so much for doing this, man. We, we love Kin. I mean, Sue and I both just race through it. It is such a phenomenal show. It is so gripping. Congratulations. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. That's so nice to hear. appreciate you. So I kind of want to start with your whole career. I want to go back. I'm kind of a Marvel guy, not kind of a Marvel guy. I am a Marvel guy. So I watched... I've never heard of someone being kind of a Marvel guy. Yeah, exactly. You're either in or you're out, right? So so you played Daredevil, which... uh, How big a break was that in your career? How'd you get that role? Um, I, I auditioned, you know, just as one of a number of auditions that, that came along and, you know, you just showed up and put yourself out there. And I tell a, a kind of a funny story, which is true, which is that I, I, I they, they, they neglected to mention on the breakdown that it was, um, that the character was blind. So my first audition, I didn't do that. <laughs> they, uh, and the feedback was, yeah, he's great. Can he, can he, can he play someone visually impaired? It's just kind of, very important. <laughs> so how do you learn to play blind? So uh, you, I worked very closely with um, a, a, a blind coach, a gentleman uh, by the name of Joe Strecce, who was incredibly helpful and uh, kind. And, and um, he, 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 at the time, had been legally blind for 20 years. Hmm. Um, and I studied him and filmed him and chatted with him and showed me how to do kind of everyday tasks that you wouldn't really think about from, you know, obviously walking the streets to making a cup of tea and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, you watch Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman and you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you kind of figure out what you, you know, you, I filmed myself a lot and to look what it, see what it looked like and whether I believed it and blah, blah, blah. And you just kind of, you just jump right in and see if you can figure out how to portray that. Yeah. I was wondering like, like at home, if you, you know, like closed your eyes ever to just get the sense that you had, didn't have sight. Oh yeah. I wore, I wore a, um, a mask. I wore a, um, a, 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 actually two masks. And I went out in the streets mm. um, with my cane and with Joe. Um, and, that you know, you learn more in half an hour of doing that than you do from studying. Um, 
and uh, I was um, there was a cool moment where Joe and I were out in Brooklyn and I was blindfolded and we both had our canes and we were walking down the street and uh, and he's kind of called to me and was like you should, wait just hold on slow down a second I think there's a wall in front of you um, and uh, and so I peaked and he was right the, the the sidewalk kind of veered to the right and i was walking straight into a wall and he could hear it wow so it's kind of like daredevil in other words your senses exactly. i mean he was like i was like they cast the wrong guy because you know? <laughs> <laughs> daredevil's blind but he also has these unbelievably attuned senses so he's kind of i mean he's blind but he's kind of not right right and the, you know what it, the, my understanding is that his his what heightened senses his sonar sense and his um ability to kind of use and pick up all different other ways of kind of forming a picture of the world make him almost more capable than a sighted person so how did you learn how'd you learn to do an american accent same. You just listen to it, you know, watch Al Pacino instead of a woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you, I, you know, I don't know. You, I work with a dialect coach. Uh, you get the phonetics down, you get the sound down as much as possible. You watch a lot of stuff and you try to find the voice and the accent that you think best suits the character. And then for me, it's just about staying in it, you know, and obviously I did, you know, it was, that was, I've been doing that with Kin in the, in the Dublin accent, um, uh, which, you know, is um, it, it's. I find it really. I find it really hard. I find it very rewarding when you start to kind of. It's almost like, it's almost like it's a free bit of character that you get that you that you don't have when you're playing someone who speaks the way that you speak in your own accent. Um, so once you've once you've kind of nailed it, it it's a it's a quick route into the character. You immediately as soon as you start speaking, you immediately kind of you remember how, who, the, who this guy is um but the work to get there is is um rigorous you know yeah i would think with an american accent too because you know there it's so regional you know you know you were you were you were in new york you know i mean you were for all intents and purposes you were a new yorker in daredevil yeah and i remember what we tried to do with that is you know he was he was educated at columbia but his father was you know a, a blue column worker and and you know boxer um and so we we kind of worked on having what we would what a brit would call kind of a general east coast accent but then we had certain sounds that we would throw in there every now and again like dog and stuff like that you know that was kind of a little bit of a of a homage to 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 matt murdoch's father so us Americans, we get really impressed when a Brit does an American accent. Um, I'm wondering when Americans do British accents, uh, are we any good at it? Are Americans any good at British accents? Yeah, some of you are, yeah. <laughs> um, but in the same way that, you know, some of us are. Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, um, I think it's harder for an American because I certainly have, um, from my generation and older, like when I was growing up, all the television I watched was American. And, and for a British show to kind of break that barrier was very, very rare. You know, I mean, I, I almost feel like, obviously you guys knew of uh, what shows and stuff, but I remember Downton Abbey being like, that wasn't that long ago, but that felt like it was the, one of the first shows that really just transcended um, the, the, the bi-coastal um, market. Um, 
So, you know, I grew, I was a kid watching Friends, you know. Uh, I remember being a, being a teenager and my dad saying to me, why are you... Why is, has everything become a question <laughs> uh, in, in my infection? And, and because, you know, in Friends, they kind of do that a little bit. You know, that was, you know, in the 90s, it was a, I guess it was a way of young talk, you know. <laughs> young talk. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, no, but there's, there's, some, um, there's some fantastic uh, British accents from American actors out there. What, what sparked your interest to become an actor? Um... Um, well, the, the, well, I was at a, I was at a boarding school in the UK and I had, uh, I had terrible acne, a terrible skin when, as a teenager and, um, uh, and therefore was the period of my, of my, my adolescence was very shy and kind of self-conscious and, um, and all of my friends in the evenings and on the weekends would go and meet the girls at the local girls school and like hang out and chat and, you know, probably smoke cigarettes or whatever we did. Um, but I didn't want to go. I was too embarrassed. And one of the ways to get out of it legitimately without feeling like you were like, uh, you know, not engaging with your friends was to get involved with theater. Cause we had rehearsals on the weekends and the evenings. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, that was, uh, that was one route in and, but I very quickly, I very quickly kind of knew that I felt a sense of f freedom and a euphoria when I was acting and just loved it. And, um, and, you know, I wasn't necessarily someone who in a group of people could say something incredibly smart and witty and make everyone laugh. But when, but when a great writer has written that line and you get to deliver it and then, you know, an audience of 200 or 900 or whatever it is bursts out laughing, that's, that's like the greatest, that's like the greatest drug in the world. It's incredibly addictive to, to, um, to feel like you, you wield that power. And it's, uh, I don't know. I, I just always loved it. Uh, yeah, Go ahead, I just want to say one thing real quick. Uh, you, br you, you brought up Al Pacino's name uh, a number of times, and I was reading that um, when you were in your late teens, you were 18 or 19 years old, you starred in The Merchant of Venice with him. Yeah. Um, what was that like as a teenager? I was mad. So I was still at drama school, and I was, I was, I was still at drama school, and on the last day of term um, from the year before, from the summer holiday break, I was, we were, we would, my year group were doing the nativity play and I was cast as one of the shepherds and I had to learn the recorder. And a couple of days later in the summer holidays, my agent, I, I was the only kid, I had an agent I, I, from a weird set of circumstances. I had an agent before I went to drama school and I'd done, a, I'd done a small movie as well. Um, and I I went for this audition and it went really well. And I decided that I wasn't going to learn the recorder until I'd, definitively found out that I did not get the job with Al Pacino. Anyway, I, I don't really know how it got to this, but the next thing I remember, it's the day before school and I don't have the job and I don't know how to play the recorder. <laughs> and, uh, and I was really in a panic. Like my, you know, I was at drama school in the UK. They're, they're no joke. You know, like I, I thought maybe I'd, I could be kicked out. I really didn't know. And it was the night before that my agent called me and said, I got the job. So I, um, and I, I, I was saved. So I, but, but, but to answer your question, but you know, what a bizarre, I was, I was about to go and tour the West country of England with the nativity play. And instead I was two weeks later, I was in Luxembourg on, on a film set with, 
you know, uh, you know, someone as iconic as Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons and Joe Fines and it was mad. Absolutely was it mad. Uh, intimidating working with guys like that? Do you know what? I think I was a bit too too young and naive to be. I, uh, later on in my career, I started getting intimidated. Uh, but at that point, it was just, I don't think I was, I don't know how, I think I have a frame of reference to be intimidated. I was just like, just doing it. I remember that uh, there was a lovely, um, there's a wonderful actor on it called John Sessions. And he kind of was well known in the U- in the UK for doing impersonations. And he, he'd done on TV, he'd done an impersonation of Al. And, and I remember we know, no, none of us knew whether Al knew this or not. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Anyway, we would have these dinners in Luxembourg quite regularly. We, you know, every couple of weeks, we'd all go to dinner, the whole cast and the producers and something. And there was one night we were leaving and I was smoking a cigarette outside and uh, John Sessions came up behind me in his best Al Pacino voice and kind of said, you know, are you coming to dinner, Charlie? Are you coming to coffee or something? I don't know, something. Else. And I just went, oh, fuck off, John. I've become friends with him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was Al. It was him. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> okay uh, uh, one, a, one, more, one more one more one more pacino reference uh, uh in the uh in the conversation here from what's your favorite pacino performance oh wow um um i, I you know maybe i mean it's uh, it's hard because i guess the i guess the ones that stick out because i feel like they're so different from the others um, or Panic in Needle Park, yeah. or mm. Carlitos Way, uh, Serpico. Uh, you know, it's hard to not say The Godfather when you, you know, when you when you think about it. But like, um, you know, I I probably go with I think as a performance, the panel, Panic in Needle Park, or maybe Dog Day After. I don't. Know. Yeah, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Attica, Attica, Attica. Attica. Yeah, I re- I heard a story. I've not. This is unconfirmed, but I heard a story that that he they shot the first day of filming of that film and and then they and Al's character had glasses and and then he got home and he called um the director and said um that they needed to reshoot the first day and um I'm blanking on who directed is it Sydney um Sydney Lumet Sydney Lumet yeah so he called him and then Sydney was like, no, 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 it's fine. Believe me, we did great work. He said, no, no, we need to do it. Cause I figured it out. I figured out the whole story. And he was like, what is, what do you mean? He's like, he, he forgot his glasses and that's why it all went wrong. <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but if you watch the movie, he's constantly checking for his glasses, you know, and then, but they had to reshoot the first day because on the first day he wore the glasses and it wasn't until he got home that he was like, ah, I know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. What well, a great character trait to, yeah. to put in there. Wow, very cool. Uh, let's talk about Kin because, uh, again, we got uh, advanced screening uh, copies of it, and it's just, it's so friggin' good. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering when you first... And it's, kind of, it's kind of godfathery in, in terms of story, you know. Very much it's so. It is, it is godfather because it's, it's above, and above all, it's, sort, it's about family, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the, the first and foremost show about family. So what's your way into this? Cause you play Michael, who's just gotten out of prison. He's, he's a broken guy. Uh, just got out of prison after eight years. What's your way into a character like that? Um, well, I, I guess, you know, your way in is the same way in with any character. It's just about, it's just about really kind of investigating 
channels that lead to how this person got to where he is. So it's a, a lot of time spent kind of interpreting and then a lot of time investigating. Um, what was exciting to me was the idea of playing someone whose reputa reputation is very different from the man we meet. Hmm. And we never get to see him. We never get to see him before he goes into prison. So, but we get a sense from what the other characters say and how they react to who he is now that it's, there's, a, there's something very different going on. And I just thought that was a really fun challenge um, to play someone who's, as you say, is clearly, clearly damaged, vulnerable, quiet, unassuming, doesn't seem to fit in with this family. And yet you get a sense that the kind of person that he has been and probably is still capable of being is, is really quite frightening. Um, yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because I noticed that you, you're kind of quiet in, in a lot of the series, you know, you, you don't have a ton of dialogue. So much of it is very, very internal. And I, my question, which you basically answered was that I was wondering if it's a, if it was a result of who you were before, you know, like being away for so long and then coming back into this world and not wanting to be who you were before, but knowing that at some point you were probably going to be pulled back in. Yes. I don't know how conscious he is of that. Cause I feel like early on, he's very determined to turn mm -hmm. this around. Mm -hmm. but, what, but what he probably subconsciously knows is that it's just not really possible for, for someone like him. I mean, what else? there's just not what other options are there you know that all he has is family and obviously his primary con his primary concern is his relationship with his daughter and he doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize that and what's so heartbreaking is that he very quickly realizes he 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 can't his plan won't is not going to work not not based on who he's been in the past not based on the family that he currently has you know, not and not. He's, what else did it? What else does he know? Can, what else can he do? He's not what he's going to wash cars for the rest of his life. No, you know. So it's a, it's 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 a, it's a kind of a naive, a naive. It's a, a painful naivety that we see kind of come to you know, kind of evolve into devolve into yeah. who he's basically been in the past. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of that. I thought I was out, and they pull me back in. Uh, just right. to quote Pacino one last time. <laughs> I think that was Godfather three. Um, how did you establish, I read that you and uh, Emmett Scanlon and Sam Kingley, that you guys actually lived in the same building and the, yeah. the and, and that helped to establish sort of those familial bonds. I think so. Yeah. It was just a happy accident. We all ended up renting in the same building and um, obviously it was during COVID. So there were quarantining rules and we were in a pod. So we were, at, we were able to see each other outside of work because we were in the same pod. And we were being tested uh, twice a week or whatever it was. Um, and the gym in our building had a rule which only one household could use it at a time. But because we were in the same pod, we were able to use it together. So we would all plan to go at the same time. Um, and so we were, you know, we kind of, Jimmy, Michael and, and Viking were working out on a daily basis. And it was just, I mean, just really helpful in terms of building that that fam those family dynamic and we you know within within the third you know the first week we were all breaking each other's balls and you know playing pranks and you know 
just brotherly like type behavior and so i think that i think that and i think you can that kind of stuff really does help when you get into filming it it, it, it through a process of like osmosis it, it gets onto the screen is there no, was there a lot of rehearsing in in a in a show like this or is it you know basically uh, we just shoot yeah, but very small budget. And the thing that I'm most proud of is what we achieved on that budget. So the thing about television that's always amazing is that, and film to a certain extent, you don't, these shows don't come with a disclaimer about how much it could cost to, to, um, to, to film, you know, and I've been on HBO shows where you, you shoot a page a day or whatever, two pages in a day, which is, you know, very leisurely, got loads of time, loads of time to rehearse at the beginning. And it's very, and that's a, a real, a lovely um, experience to have and incredibly luxurious. But on a show like this, if we missed the scene, there was no picking it up. There mm. wasn't, oh, we'll, we'll tack it on the day next. Th there wasn't. There was in, in, in the, in the second episode, there was a scene where we're driving, I'm driving, I'm, I'm in the car with Jimmy and we drive past Anna, my daughter, and I see her and I get out the car and try and try and chat to her. Um, and the day that was scheduled to film that we lost the light really early and it was, we couldn't do it. And so it wasn't a question of like finding another time to do that. That scene is now not in the show. We just never, we never, we couldn't afford it. That's uh, and so when I, I look at, I watched the first couple of episodes and it, it feels large it feels expensive comparatively and i'm very you know i'm very impressed with that so my understanding is that you worked did you work with your partner in life on this yeah 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 yeah. so my wife produced it um and uh you know it, it came about you probably read this but it came about i was i read it she asked me to read it out of interest i was already contracted to do something else um and i read it and was immediately drawn to it and kind of jealous of how rich the characters were and how what, how compelling the story was. And, and then suddenly things just worked out how, you know, sometimes life just works out. And it was really wonderful because it meant that we got to go as a family to Dublin and make the show and stay together during a time where if I, I wouldn't, if, if we wouldn't, hadn't been able to go together, if my wife wasn't producing it, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it because I wouldn't have wanted to be stuck in Ireland and not be able to be, see my, my kids, you know, and my wife. So did you have any hesitation about working with your wife? Like, I, I don't think I could work with, uh, with my partner on a project. I would, we would potentially be at loggerheads a fair amount of the time. Did you have any hesitation yourself working with no, your wife? My wife, my wife is, is, is no, I, I, not honestly, not even for a split second. She's so, um, she's so impressive and she's so, um, open-minded and there's no, she's a great producer. There's no, there's no problem you can throw at her that she doesn't come back with a really amicable solution almost immediately. So, um, no, no, that was actually a, an absolute pleasure and a joy. And, um, and it's also quite a nice because if I have a thought, you know, us actors, we, we have thoughts and opinions and sometimes they're brilliant and sometimes they're, total dog shit <laughs> <You know>? and, <laughs> and it's nice because i could go to her and she she could be like oh that's a really interesting idea and if it was interesting i'd see it manifest and if it wasn't interesting it would just quietly go away you know <laughs> and never to be spoken of again but i i was only told it was interesting so that's you know that's why <laughs> so we've been asking this question what what are you watching right now there's so much good stuff what are you watching i just watched white lotus ah uh, it's funny. It's right. really funny, I think. Amazing. 
yeah. and funny and and, and Twisted. and it's the kind of everything. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, I watch a lot of like, I watch a lot of, I, I can't, I, you know, I have young kids. And so I sit down to watch something and at nine 30, I, my eyelids start to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and also they, by nine 30, I'm lucky if they've been in bed for half an hour. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. So I watch a lot of like short, um, sports documentaries or, or documentaries in general. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going through a series on Netflix at the moment called Untold. Sports. Yeah, yeah. Did you watch mm-hmm. Mal- that's Malice at the Palace, right? I watched that one last night. Yeah. Oh, it's it was- so good, right? Now, oh, 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 that was heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. It was heartbreaking. I know Ron really well. Ron is a friend of mine. Now he goes by Meta World Peace, but uh, right. he's become such a gentle guy in the wake of that. Um, and has talked really openly about, you know, his issues with, with mental health and has been just a, a great champion for that cause. And it's hard to believe that's even the same guy uh, that, that you see in Malice at the Palace. Yeah. Now, did you f- amazing. I don't know as an American if you'd like it as much, but it's, I give it a try because it's so compelling, even if you're not into the sport. But there's a, another show on Netflix called um, Drive to Survive, Formula One Drive to Survive. Oh, yeah. And it's, it, it's absolutely sensational. But again, it's like we all sports stuff. It's, the, it's, it's not the results that interest me. It's, not, it's, it's, the, it's this mentality. It's the dynamics within it. And what's amazing about this, this show, these are t- arguably the 20 most talented drivers in the world. Hmm. So on the one hand, you'd expect them to be, inc- and they're very well paid and very well, you know, compensated, and 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 also they're it's incredibly dangerous. So they're inc- really courageous, and you know, so you'd expect them to be brimming with confidence and swagger. But it's so easy to lose your seat hmm. because there are any number of amazing young drivers coming up through the ranks. So it's a really interesting kind of paradox where you've got these incredibly competent, accomplished, amazing athletes who are riddled at times. Some of them are riddled with insecurity and fear about losing their seat the next season and stuff. And it's such a hard sport to become a professional in too. Cause I, I knew a guy when I was growing up, he was in his early twenties and, um, like as far as you, you have to have somebody with a lot of money to back yeah. you to to yeah. to actually be- become a professional. Yeah, or you have to be, you know, maybe the only Mexican driver, and and therefore a Mexican, you know, conglomerate will get behind you as a poster child. And you know, there's a marketability element to it, which is, which is, and that's why the show is fascinating. You know what I yeah. mean? It's, I've been watching that. Yeah. What about you guys? What have you watched? Well, as far as sports, because we're big sports people, Steve Steve um, co-hosts a uh, sports show here in LA. Um, oh, cool. I'm a huge Mets fan, so I just watched um, Once Upon a Time in Queens. Oh, cool! Oh, which cool. was I'd like to see that. phenomenal. Yeah, I bet. and and, I'd like and to see you know, that. you talk about it not just being about baseball. It it was so brilliant in the relationships that these players had, you know, their stories were just so compelling with their fathers and, and, um, and it, and it really was just such a magical time. You know, I'm, I grew up a New York Mets fan. So um, for me, it was uh, it, 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 the footage that they had was just incredible. And the interviews were just so real and raw. Uh, 
Uh, you great. know what's fascinating to me about baseball? I'm not a baseball, a big baseball fan. I don't, I, I don't really get it. I, I, I like cricket. I love cricket. Mm-hmm. Baseball, I don't, I can't, I find it hard to get passionate about it. I can watch it a little bit, but I don't tend to. Having said that, I would say two of my, if I was to write a top 10 list of my favorite films, there's only two, arguably two or three sports movies on there. And both two of them are baseball films. No, which ones? Uh, the Natural. Yeah. And Moneyball. Moneyball yeah. is great. Moneyball, Moneyball is, is great. Moneyball is sensational. I, so, can't, I can't believe how good that film is. So this is, this is a true story. And I'm, I think it's a true story. That's, that's, by the way, a weird statement. I think it's a true story. So Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball... Yeah, I've read um, a few of his books. Yeah, he's genius. He's a genius. And after Moneyball came out, I was interviewing him. And afterwards, I said, um, I'll tell you what, I would like to buy the film rights for this film. And he said, I'll sell them to you for a dollar. There's no movie in this film. What? Yeah, you know, no, no, hey. no movie in this book. What? And the, the truth is, it was hard to picture a movie coming out of my, cause it was so nuts and bolts and on base average and situational lefties and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, there's still a story here. And he thought, nah, I don't, I just don't see it. I don't see it. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. it be- <laughs> became such a great movie. So I'm a, my, the, 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 I'm a, when you, uh, with kids, I can, I have to limit the amount of sport I watch cause you can waste entire weekends. Yes. So <laughs> I watch, there's two sports I watch, unless it's like the Wimbledon final or whatever. There's two things I watch on a regular basis. I watch my football team, Arsenal. Yep. And I watch uh, every other Sunday, I watch the Grand Prix. So uh, the, we just recently had the first game of the season and Arsenal were playing a newly pr- promoted side. who They haven't been in the premiership for since the 50s or something. It's like 70 years they haven't been in the premiership. So it's an easy first game for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they destroyed us, and it was, and it's you know I mean we we, we, uh, we uh, there was rumors of our manager being fired after the first game of the season because it was such a you know anyway they said in during the commentary I didn't know this team they're called Brentford FC that they are they have in, they've um implemented the Billy Bean philosophy of uh, you know statistics you know figure sabermetrics sabermetrics or whatever they call that yeah analytics. And mm-hmm. analytics in soccer, exactly, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how they do. They're doing very well. So I'm a Rams season ticket holder, and we're owned by Stan Kroenke, and I think Stan Kroenke owns, yeah, owns Arsenal, the- right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And I've heard that he is disliked as an owner. Is that true? Um, uh, this is a tricky one to talk about. I don't want to speak out of turn. My, I, I, And I don't really dig deep into the forums and the Reddits about yeah. it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, the general feeling, an un, an ill-educated feeling, is that with soccer, with football, you can you can make a tidy profit by but without winning much. Hmm. If you qualify for the Champions League, for example, every season, which for thirty years we did, you. You, you could make as much money as the teams who win everything. In, in fact, you probably make more because you're spending less on expensive players and stuff like that. And so th- there was, we, you know, we've sadly not won anything in 15 something years now. Um, and the feeling I think with the Cronkies is that there, there is little incentive to fix that problem. 
um, because we're not in danger of we're ne- we're never going to be relegated. We're, you know, it'd be very unlikely that that would ever happen. So we're just kind of a uh, we'll finish sixth or seventh. And so for for, for our Arsenal teams uh, fans, it's very un it's very uncomfortable because we're used to being champions and we're not anymore. So, so do you do you watch uh, Ted Lasso? I do. Yeah. I do. And right. Yeah, I mean it's it's great. It's really mm-hmm. really fun as a as a football fan you know you see holes in the some of the the, the structure of the, the football games themselves yeah themselves but um no it's great and it's, it's beautifully acted and incredibly charming I, I like it a lot more than i thought i was gonna like it. Um, uh all right last thing for you yeah um what what have you learned about yourself during the pandemic oh what a great question what a great question i wrote it down i i thought it would be a good one <laughs> Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, you could almost phrase it, what haven't you learned about yourself? Um, I I have learned that I have learned that I am a tremendous father for two or three hours of the day. (laughs) If you give me and I really am like, I'm, I'm incredibly hands-on. I'll do all of it. I'm not, I don't, you know what I mean? I'm stuck in. I get them out the house. We go on ventures. We go on hikes. We go, we do, you know, I'm, I'm, I do bath time and bedtime. I love it all. Like I'm not just tapping in for the fun stuff. Right. I'm really a good dad. If I have, you know, a couple of hours in the morning and an hour in the afternoon or whatever. I'm not including the the nighttime routine. That's that's uh, that's just a given, right? I'm just yeah. talking about day. It, much more than that, and I and I start to lose my sense of humor around it. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Like any more than that, I have I have so much respect for so much more than I even imagined for stay at home parents who have got the kids all day because it is. In my experience, it is so much easier to get in the car, go to an office. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not detracting from what people do in their professional lives at all. But being on kid duty, well, my wife's full time, um, and we're very fortunate now since we came back from kin that we have a nanny who can who you know, and that means that when I'm not working, I can tap in, do a couple hours, take my daughter. My daughter's birthday today; she's five today. Nice. Um, and I can, I can do stuff, but I really do need to not be on dad duty all day. Otherwise, I, I get a pretty grumpy about it. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, what are you doing today for her birthday? So, so she got her main present last night because we couldn't hide it. It's a trampoline. Nice. So I wrapped up a pair of socks, trampolining socks. <laughs> and she, I said she was allowed to open them, and so she opened them. And she was, and she was like, "Oh, and she's so sweet." She was like trying to be enthusiastic, but they were socks. <laughs> but she was like, "Thanks." And we were like, "But what are they?" And she was like, "They're socks." And we we're like, "Yeah, but they're not just any old socks. They're trampolining socks." And then she went, and she was like, "I don't understand." I'm like, "Go outside." <laughs> so you can actually, you can actually see there it is with a bow on. Oh yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. So, um, so she's gone to school. She's at school, and then we have a we have a kind of a party this weekend with a bouncy castle and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, we have she's going to come home. She's going to bounce. She's going to eat cake, throw up. 
<laughs> and you'll get, and you'll have to clean it up and be a good father. I'll, I'll probably do. I'll probably throw up as well. I'll probably <laughs> eat a cake, bounce on the bat, thing. And I'll, <laughs> Well, listen, the uh, the show is called Kin. It is available on AMC+. Plus. Cannot recommend it more strongly. Fun talking to you, man. Really appreciate meeting you. Likewise, guys. Really appreciate you guys. Great talking to you. There he is, Charlie Cox. Charming guy. Really funny. Really funny. And I love how he's so into sports. Yeah, I know. I know. He knew the 85 Mets, right? That's what that uh, documentary is about. The, the 86, 86 Mets. Mets, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you, I don't know if I've told this story to you or not. So my dad was crazy about the 86 Mets. And we went to a lot of baseball games when I was a, a kid. I was probably, a, I was like a teenager. Uh, and we, would, we went to see the Mets and the Pirates. And my dad was crazy about the Mets. And he was- just, an, was, it, was he crazy about the Mets just during that time? Just during that time. Okay. My dad was the ultimate front runner. If somebody okay. was really oh, okay. good, he was totally into it. Okay. Uh, he loved Daryl Strawberry. He loved those guys. So we, he goes to the railing and he's trying to get, uh, autographs from members of the Mets. Have I told you the story? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tell it again. Tell it again. So tell it again. Here, tell it again. Here's my Funny dad story. with a bunch of kids. Right? They're all trying to get autographs, and <laughs> and my dad starts yelling, "Straw!" He's trying to get Daryl Strawberry over. Straw, straw, come here. So after a lot of annoyance, Strawberry finally walks over, and when he gets there, my dad says. Send Gooden over here. I don't have his autograph yet. <laughs> and did he? Yeah, he did. He oh, did. My yeah. dad did get Gooden. He got the entire team. He had oh, the entire that's team. Great. Uh, like we were friends with uh, a guy named, you probably remember him, Tim Tuffle. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, we were friends with him. When I was working uh, minor league baseball uh, for the Toledo Mudhens, uh, Tim Tuffle was there. He almost won the Triple Crown in the International League and was with the Mets for a long time. Long time. Yeah, yeah I good mean, player. He was, a, he was a big cog in the wheel of, the, of that championship. So you uh, have you given up on the Mets for this year? I would imagine you have, right? Oh, yeah. It's over. It's, it's totally over. Is that, is know, that just deflating for you? Is that because it was right there? No, well, you know, the, well, it's it's kind of the Mets, you know, right, you know what right. I mean? I mean, they were they were in first place for a majority of the season, playing on with you know without um, without great pitching, you without know? Jake I mean, Degrom, without, without Noah Degrom, Syndergaard. without Syndergaard, um, and but it's just a weak division, so it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, do they have a chance? And they do, you know, this is what the Mets do. I mean, they have this golden opportunity because the Braves were, you know, lost a bunch of games recently. Yeah, yeah. And what happens? They lose, they get swept by the Cardinals. Yeah. Um, they almost got swept by the Phillies. They they salvaged the game last night, but of course they win and then the Braves won. So they're never, they're never in sync for what they have to do. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I blame a lot of the season we, we were talking about the other day. I blame a lot of, of the season on Rojas because I think he's made just such poor, poor decisions. But, you know, they just they're not clutch. And after watching that documentary, oh, my yeah. God, I, I, I just was jealous of the team that they were. Now, did, <laughs> they, know, have a lot of, did they have a lot of drugs in that uh, documentary? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they were. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean they they laid it out. You have to watch it. It is phenomenal. Oh, I definitely will. It's so funny. It makes me think of this Norm McDonald joke, uh, where he was. <laughs> this was at the ESPYS. We were talking about uh, Norm McDonald in the last show. 
he got a nice tribute at the uh, at the Emmys last night, and he said uh, the Cowboys were coming off a losing season, and Jerry Jones he says had he decided they've got to get back to basics, crack and hookers, which <laughs> is really what drove those Cowboys teams. Oh they yeah, and the Mets. I mean, they, you know, they're telling stories about like, you know, they're, you know, getting high, you know, not only just getting high probably during the game, but like Strawberry was like having sex with women in between innings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, they were insane. <laughs> they were loose. Sometimes were, being loose were, is how you win. Yeah, exactly. But they were, they were a phenomenal team. I mean, they were, they were the kind of team that no matter how many runs they were down, you always knew that they were going to win. Yes, yes. That was a great team. Yeah, I will definitely watch the doc. Have you watched Malice at the Palace? I haven't, but I'm uh, going to. It's great. It is great. Um, all right, so there you have it. Um, hey, time to talk about our friend Jacob Abrani. Mm. So, you know, Sue, I got into an accident last year. It was in downtown LA. I don't want to give any details of it. But, okay. Uh, uh, right from the uh, scene of the accident, I had the, I had the number in my head because I do so many, so many commercials for Jacob. Eight four four twenty four Jacob. I called from the scene of the accident, and you know what Jacob did? Rushed right over. Uh, he wow! Will, he, he, will, he actually came down. He came down exactly. Wow. And you know he's got a really big team. So if you're involved in any kind of accident, Jacob won't necessarily come, but somebody from his team is going to mm-hmm. come to you and make sure that everything gets handled the way it is supposed to talk to the insurance company, get you to the right doctor, get your maximum compensation at the end of the day. Hopefully you don't get into an accident, right? Hopefully none of your friends or your mom or your kid or whoever it is doesn't get into an accident. But if they do remember the, and don't be afraid to call from the scene. You can put in, uh, put in uh, your phone, eight four four twenty four jacob and just list it as Mason's attorney. 844-24-JACOB, Mason's attorney, 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, call Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, uh, baby. Yeah, that was, uh, that was on. That was pretty re- on. Oh, oh, okay, because you're, you're very hard to please. I am very hard. You're, very, you're insatiable when it comes <laughs> to am. doing these... Uh, Doing the song. Yeah, the song is very important to me. It's very important to Jacob, too. He wants it mm-hmm. to be right. He's told me, you guys are off sometimes. Oh, he gives you notes. <laughs> yeah. give you notes? Does he give you some sort of clue on, on how we get that last part yeah, right? I get notes. He's the one guy that gives notes on this show, is Jacob <laughs> Amrani. Hey, Sue, fun today. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. And we will talk to everybody on the next Culture Pop podcast. <laughs>